Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can get access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. Before today's episode, I'm excited to announce that fans of the show now have an opportunity to get some brand new merch to go with my new book coming out in February. I call it the Colorblind Collection, and you can find it on my website at colemanhughes.org. It's pretty cool merch, so head over to the website right now and place your order, or simply follow the link on the description below. Okay, now on to the episode. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Mary Harrington. Mary is a writer and contributing editor at Unheard. She's the author of a great book called Feminism Against Progress. In this episode, we talk about her general critique of feminism. We talk about what she calls progress theology. We talk about the changing social status of motherhood. We talk about the Barbie movie, gender dysphoria, and much more. I've been wanting to talk to Mary for a very long time, so this was exciting for me. I hope you all enjoy it as much as I did. So without further ado, Mary Harrington. Okay, Mary, thanks so much for coming on my show. Thank you for having me. So I was just telling you before we started, I first heard you on the Red Scare podcasts and I found your formulation about modern feminism to be fascinating. Uh, Before we get into all of that and and your book, great book, uh, Feminism Against Progress, let's just get a little bit about you for my audience. Like, How did you come to, through your personal life experiences, reformulate your take on on feminism? Maybe just take me back to when you were uh, college age and how you thought then and walk me through a little bit how you came to be who you are now. I guess the very short version of the story is that when I was when I left university, I was a card-carrying queer theory spouting Judith Butlerite, and but a series of accidents turned me into kind of the opposite of that. The slightly longer version of the story is: I guess I grew up in the in the middle of the end of history, and I, like that context is probably important in the sense that you know when I, when I was a teenager, it was the mid nineteen nineties, and I think pretty much everybody took for granted at that point that we we'd kind of done all the history stuff. Like people really, it re- it really felt true. You know, I think back to it now, it really felt as though shopping malls and, you know, self-expression through clothing choices and really nothing very exciting ever happening again was probably just it. You know, we'd reached the pinnacle of human civilization. We weren't going to have any more wars and just liberal democracy and consumerism and McDonald's was kind of, that, that was it. We were done. Um, I mean, <laughs> haha lol, as it turns out. But, I mean, but that as a framing device, I, as a framing for where I was with feminism, I guess I first met feminist ideas in my early teens. And, and in the book, I've I think the first, my moment of coming to feminist consciousness was the, the moment when I realised that I have, I have two brothers. Um, I've described this this moment in the book because it really stayed with me and still does as a, as a dilemma. That, but I have two brothers, one older, one younger. And I, there was a point when I was in my early teens, I guess, when I realised that like my mum would set the table every every evening for dinner. She was a, she was mostly a homemaker. Um, and then at the end of dinner, my dad would get up and leave the table and just leave all the dishes on the table. This was He just took it for granted that, you know, de- dealing with the table just wasn't part of what he did. That wasn't his contribution to the family. And once... 
after a certain point, my brothers started to copy him, and I was watching them, thinking, "This is this doesn't seem fair. Like this is this doesn't seem right. Why why are they not helping them to clear the table?" And, and then I, I realized I had a dilemma. Do I a because um, it's what it seemed to say was, "This is beneath me. This is below my pay grade. Um, somebody else can deal with this." Implicitly, my mum, who is therefore implicitly a lower lower class of human who just has to do all the menial stuff, and everybody else can get on with fun things like I don't know, watching telly or making Lego or whatever. And I was I was and my moment of coming to feminist consciousness in the, I guess, the early 1990s was thinking, okay, so do I assert my equality with my brothers in feeling entitled to say, this is below my pay grade and I'm just going to leave the table and go and do Lego or draw pictures of unicorns or whatever I wanted to do? Or do I express solidarity with my mum as the only other woman female in the house and help her do the dishes? And I was thinking, this is a really unfair position to put me in. And like, but but it's it, it stuck with, it stayed with me as well. I mean, I'll, I'll come back to the question, who does the dishes is kind of the perennial question, I think, you know, that, that opens out into much bigger terrains of, you know, who who does the dirty work and who who does the caring. And this is something I've I've thought, I've said and thought a lot about since. But at the time, I don't I, I mean I wasn't really thinking about it in grand historical terms as I do now. And I was just thinking of it in terms of this is really unfair. And that led me to read Simone de Beauvoir, um, who wrote a very famous early 20th century book, The Second Sex, um, which which explores a lot of these questions. And that was that was really what ignited my interest in feminism and my sense of injustice. That these sex divisions should be there implicitly somehow baked into the everyday, the tiny, minute interactions of our everyday lives. But, uh, but um, you know, I came to it from Simone de Beauvoir, through Simone de Beauvoir, you know, who tacitly accepted a lot of my dad's premises that all of the, that the menial stuff really was menial. And that did make us, that did make anybody who accepted that as their lot in life, somehow a secondary, a second class person. And with that, I, I accept, I absorbed, I suppose, a lot of the sort of end of history, liberal feminist principles, which, which, which declared that women could and should be the equals of men in every possible sense and implicitly that that meant all of all the menial stuff should be below our pay grade too and never really looked very closely at the question of who in fact was going to be doing it then so this is you know not in a particularly examined way you know via the, the that that's the material I took to university with me whereupon I met queer theory and um, postmodernism and a whole whole load of other things which sent me completely around the twist I mean it's genuinely crazy making to encounter that stuff for the first time and le- left university fully fully committed to that sort of deconstructionist worldview I guess as a sort of early adopter of wokeism and the idea that we should be de- deconstructing all hierarchies and abolishing the ideological or the the ideologies that inscribe us within within systems, you know, irrespective of where we would choose to be, and and instead to kind of try and fashion ourselves from first principles according to our desire, which we, we, that, that which is I suppose the sort of that's the positive aspiration of that that worldview, if you like, that we should be able to shake off all of these these impositions that come to us from our identities and ideologies and existing superstructures and you know the the, the matrices of power and and, and oppression, which which supposedly bear down on us and force us into this or that place, and um, that we should be able to somehow somehow demolish all of that stuff and just free freely self fashion according to however we want to be. That was my aspiration by the time I left university and did my sincere best to put that into practice in real life, which as it turns out is easier said than done. And it was just not a very, not very emotionally satisfying or financially rewarding as it turns out. I mean, this is, this is the naughty. So, I mean, the, all, all the architectures of identitarian grifting didn't really exist yet. So like it was, it wasn't very easy to be 
profitably obsessed with identi- identity politics in the way it is now. I mean, you know, the whole There's new no political, huge yeah. corporate DEI sector at right. that point. Right, right, right. It yeah. was all very avant-garde at that point. So if you were if you were obsessed with identities and obsessed with ideologies and so on, you were you were pretty much on your own, and everyone just thought you were a bit unhinged, which is arguably true. Anyway, <laughs> long story short, you know, I got to about I, I guess I got to my late twenties, and I mean, I, I sort of did various different jobs and sucked at most of them because I was functionally unemployable because I was a bit nuts. But and the I mean that all sort of came to a head when a, a startup which I co-founded with friends fell apart um, in the year of the year of the great crash, partly through my own fault because I was I was too just pathologically hostile to hierarchies or really kind of working in any stable way at all with anyone. And yeah, I mean I, I take a I take a major share of the blame for for what went wrong. But it was a really painful experience because in the pro- I, I sort of lost everything in the process. I lost everything I thought I had, which was which is to say my social circle and my my friends and my my purpose in life. And and with that went a lot of the things I thought I'd believed. And with that also went any sense of any sense of alignment with what was then the prevailing kind of political orthodoxy, which was the third way. I mean, I don't know, I, I guess that the, the American equivalent would probably be Clintonism. This idea that you could you could reorder the forces of commerce to social good, which was, again, something that people genuinely believed in the noughties, even though it seems insane now. I mean, now now we have woke capital and again, ha ha lol. But back then people genuinely thought it was, it, this could work. You know, nothing else seems to be working. And, you know, especially since Thatcher and Reagan kind of demolished the, the previous social settlement, you know, all we really have now is capitalism. So let's try and make it good. You know, that, that seemed like a plausible avenue to try at the time, even if it seems insane now. And so we were genuinely trying to do that. You know, we were trying to disrupt education and make the world a better place and also make lots of money at the same time. And for a moment, it seemed like we might actually succeed in doing it. And then it all went hideously wrong. And I, by the time I like losing, losing a business from underneath you that is, I mean, I I've never been, God forbid, I've never been divorced, but, but it was like losing everything. It was a completely devastating experience. And by the time I recovered from that, it was, I mean, it took seven years, I think, to, to recover from the, the complete, like total detonation of my, of my, my, my entire world, by which time, and by the time I came out the other end, I mean, the rebuilding took a long time. I read a lot and I thought a lot and I left London. You know, I, I formed new friendships. I retrained as a psychotherapist. I met my husband. We got married. I left, I left London. I did various just kind of dull money, money jobs, which I was not particularly good at, but functional. Did my level best to be, be more normal. Like by the time I came out the other end of that, you know, having just set aside all of the, all of the different ways I'd sort of been a kind of unhinged avant-garde political hipster in my 20s. I was, yeah, I was living in the countryside. I had a kid and I just didn't believe in any of the things which I'd believed in before. And I didn't, I didn't, well, I mean, I, I still believe some of them, but I didn't believe in progress. And I didn't, and I found myself questioning a lot of the anti hierarchical postmodernist stuff, at least questioning how, how conducive all of that worldview was to leading any kind of a flourishing, sane, or sustainable life, I yeah. guess. So, so that's the long answer. <laughs> Uh, there's so much, there's so, so many different directions we could go in there. One I notice is that you're able to reflect on your past and hold yourself responsible to a degree that is unusual. Most people that are, for instance, terrible employees because they've been indoctrinated into a kind of anti-hierarchy worldview where any kind of direction is strikes them as unjust. And uh, most of them are not able to say, actually, that that was my fault, but you have a remarkable ability to view your past with some kind of remove and reflection, which is 
I think, atypical and, you know, something in that seven year crumbling of, of the business and out of the ashes, you were really able to reformulate your past in a way that is that most people are unable to. I think it, it was probably actually, although I don't practice as a psychotherapist now, it was probably that one of the things you do a lot as a trainee psychotherapist is you practice on each other and you get a lot of feedback in the process. I got a lot of feedback. I learned a lot about all the ways I was abrasive, all the ways I was just not very easy to work with. I mean, it's kind of of painful to think about it now, but I guess I grew a lot in the process and I'm grateful to I'm grateful to my peers on that course for helping me to do it. One of the big themes that your story and your book highlights is this notion of freedom. The the attractiveness of living a life completely free of blueprints, of categories, of archetypes, completely unshackled from every expectation, just purely following your deepest, truest self self-inventing completely. This is a very attractive thing, especially for young people, I find. And it's, it, I think it was more attractive to me when I was younger as well. But There's probably you, something very American about it, t- particularly. I mean, the idea of the idea of being able to go west in a, in a sort of metaphorical sense. You know, you, you leave everything behind and start a, start afresh in, in uncharted territory. I mean, it, it inspires a lot of people, but there's, I mean, it, it feels like it's pretty close to the heart of the American dream. Very much. I remember as a teenager, I was blessed to be able to go to Japan a few times as a jazz musician. And one thing I noticed is that all of us American kids we were looking to make friends and go out drinking with some like Japanese rebel kids, right? Just like I'd heard of when American kids go to Spain or France, they, they make all these friendships and blah, blah, blah. no one was willing to do it. And it struck me as a very deep cultural difference in many Western societies that to rebel against any norm, to, to be an individual, to find yourself, to follow your heart, right? That's not a universal thing, of course. And, and the promise of that freedom is you're going to find happiness and self-realization. But I I think what many people find is that it can be an endless search for like that self-realization is just right around the corner and never quite comes. And that freedom also can be a burden taken to an extreme because you have nothing to hold on to, right? I wonder how, how do you think of this notion of freedom and, and liberation in the context of feminism and happiness? One of the things I always chafed against, you know, at the most basic level was being female-bodied. Um, you know, to be to be born with a female body is if you drink the Kool-Aid, if you accept the the general premises of liberal feminism, implicitly to be to be born female is to be at a disadvantage in a, in a thousand and one different ways, because the default, the cultural default across the board is male, you know, in terms of physical strength, in terms of your expectations for what professional life looks like, in terms of a, a thousand and one different things. And that's baked into the culture. Caroline Criado Perez recently wrote a book about just how far the default male standard is it, it's baked in, you know, the shape of surgical instruments, you know, the, the tolerances of crash test dummies, you know, the dosages in medical trials, which, are, which, which just take male standard, which just take male subjects and generally don't, don't test separately on women, even though our physiologies are very different. There's a, there's a thousand and one different ways in which the, the distinct physiological differences between male and female human beings are just not calibrated for in the culture, which, which you would think would render us more equal, but it doesn't. Um, because in practice, what it does is it makes the male the male standard just the default, and therefore frames women as sort of defective humans in every possible way. And even if nobody's ever actually spelled that out to you explicitly, you you can end up as if you're born woman, uh, just internalising that from the word go. And certainly, I experienced. I mean, I guess my my family situation growing up took a lot of this for granted. You know, my my dad set the tone of the family culture, and my brothers were, uh, you know, and the it, it was it was a very it was a very sort of male centric 
culture and in a sense you know to be feminine to be female was it was kind of something which which happened in a slightly embarrassed way behind closed doors or when my brothers weren't watching because otherwise they'd tease me you know being girly was just kind of an affront to the family culture so I, I grew up with this incredible ambivalence about about being female and when I mean when I encountered Judith Butler for the first time who who's who proposed this whole theory of how we could construct our own genders from first principles as it were you know the, to say that gender is a performance you know it's not contingent on our bodies because in a sense sex is constructed as well, and she makes this argument that you know the, the fact that we talk or think about sex in culture means that in a sense somehow we're making that up as well, and it all just comes into being in relation to each other, and therefore we can just kind of create ourselves from first principles and free ourselves from from our embodiment. I mean, it was it was an incredibly enticing prospect, but what I what I came to realise is that it's just not true. It's just it's a lie that actually our our bodies shape how we experience the world at such a fundamental level that it's much it's actually as I've as I've come to think more liberating to accept our givens and to accept that there are some things which will be more or less accessible to us, you know, based on the particularities of where we find ourselves in our embodied state and in our kind of cultural context, that it, it makes, you know, it's actually more liberating to just accept, accept those givens and to work with it than it is to try and to try and escape them because you all you ever find yourself doing when you try and escape the givens of your own physiology is just running running to stay ahead of something which is which you can never really escape because all you all you're ever really doing is running from your own shadow and i mean you know i, I joke sometimes that like descartes would never have come up with the with the idea of the mind body split if he got pms once a month you know this is this is this is how fundamental the embodiment affects how we perceive the world um you know and i would i wouldn't want to generalize about all of women but i would i would suggest that women probably see a different relationship between object and subject simply because we're used to we're used to a hormonal cycle which is much more much more palpably affects your mood and your and your perception of things over the course of the month. But I mean, but this stuff this stuff goes all the way down and, and honestly it's just it's just much more freeing if you accept it. And I suppose the just to concretize this a little bit, the point where really I've, I've found myself framing this for the first time and, and really coming to some sense of peace and reconciliation with my own body, having been at war with myself, you know, through eating disorders and you know extreme physical practices and you name it. I've tried everything at one one point or another to, to try and wage war and gain control over my physical body. I have a very ambivalent relationship with my own embodiment. Um, but the, the point where I managed to find some sense of peace with my own body was in having a child, because that was the point at which I realised just how much of it I wasn't in control of, and that in fact there was something freeing about that. I mean, you know, feeling a, another human being in, in your literal viscera is a very sort of de-centering de experience, I think is probably the best way I can, you know, being kicked in the ribs from the inside um, and realise, you know, this, is, this isn't something terrifying. Um, you know, it's, this isn't sort of HR Geiger body horror, it's the most wonderful thing in the world, which, you know, from, from the perspective of somebody who's been raised to think of their, their own embodiment as inviolable or as or as an imposition just reads as straight up body horror. But but it's not like that, you know. If it's a wanted pregnancy and and you, you know you're in a you're in a happy relationship and you and you want a kid, it's not. It's it's not body horror. It's fantastic. It's incredible. What really blew my mind was real was discovering that the sense of being more more than one person but less than two people goes on for a long time after your baby's born. Like my daughter was born, and for a long time afterwards, it felt as though she was still part of my own body. It was it felt very much like I'd grown an extra limb, which was somehow weirdly not attached to me anymore, but was just over there in a crib. But I but like the desire to to care for you know to secure the well being of my this other part of my body was just every bit as strong as it would be, you know, if it was my own hand. If I saw sort of immediate proximate danger approaching 
that extra part of me over there. I'd be, I'd take evasive action just as urgently as, as if I, you know, as, as if there was a car rolling towards my fingers. It's, it's that visceral. And yeah, it's incredibly hard to describe unless you've been there. It's like going through the looking glass. You know, the only time I've ever crashed a car in 20 odd years of driving was, well, damaged a car, was trying to get it around, get, get the car around a tight corner with my hungry baby screaming in the back. And I literally couldn't think. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a bad driver. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a perennial scratcher of wing mirrors. But on that occasion, um, on that occasion, I grazed the car going around the corner because I just couldn't think because she needed me. And, and the, her physical need for food was, was so overwhelming that just pretty much the, the, all, all my, all my capacity for spatial reasoning or contextual thought or really adulting, functioning at all as an adult, except to tend to her needs, pretty much completely shut down. And like operating heavy machinery under those conditions was just really difficult. And you try and, and then, you know, the more time I spent doing this, the more I, I, I tried to, and I tried to map that experience back onto everything I'd internalized about what freedom meant as a, as a condition of separateness and a sort of, and of freedom from obligation and of detachment from expectations or obligations or assumptions or stereotypes or any of uh, things which might be imposed on me from the outside, which structure what I should or shouldn't do, or, you know, set expectations or demands or strictures on me. And that was always my understanding of freedom. My understanding of feminism was that it was the pursuit of that kind of freedom for women, you know, from a position of greater disadvantage than men. Right. I'd always just taken it for granted that that's what, that's what feminism meant. And then I was like, hang on a minute, none of this maps onto what actually matters more to me than anything else in the world. Right now, which is tending to the needs of my newborn baby. And so if this is my experience as a mother of a newborn child, and the majority of women have children, the majority of feminism ought to be speaking to the interests of women. And if, if, if a majority of those women are mothers, how have we ended up with an ideology which is promising a type of freedom which is radically incompatible with the experience of being a mother? How did we end up with a mother-shaped blind spot? This just doesn't make sense. And that, I guess that started me, you know, that was the kind of head-scratcher moment, pushing my baby in a buggy around, this, around small town England, no, which, which, which kind of started me on asking the questions which led to the book. I have to imagine that that has to resonate with a lot of women. I, I can give you, I think, why it resonates with me is uh, I'm 27 now and still among my male friends, I'm one of, I'm in the minority in knowing that I want to have multiple kids and in not viewing that as something to be delayed as long as possible. Basically that the attitude I find um, certainly among men and to some extent among, among women is do everything in life before you have kids. Cause once you have kids, if you have kids, your life is over, right? That's the certainly been the ethos growing up in a, a liberal city in America. I've, I haven't felt that way in a long time. And I think something in me changed when my mother died, when I was 19, the experience of being her child and comforting her through that, something just permanently switched in me where I was like, yes, I'm definitely having kids. And I've had no doubts or qualms about it. And even given that having a family probably may have some negative trade-off with my career or something like that, that doesn't bother me at all if it's going to be the case, because I don't think anything really could be more important in life. So when I would talk to when I would talk to women, like in college, I went to Columbia and Barnard was across the street was really a hotbed of the kind of freedom feminism, freedom from family, freedom from motherhood, the, the male ideal as the sort of goal to be aspired to. I had a girlfriend at the time who said, I feel there's something denigrating towards motherhood in, in all of this. Like it would to be a, a quote unquote stay at home mom is viewed as low status in this 
in this culture. And I thought that can't be right. There has to be something wrong about that if the version of feminism denigrates motherhood, right? There, there has to be some kind of way to fight for women's unique and separate interests without teaching women that they ought not be mothers, that they're not enough if they do that. Because certainly as a man, I feel to be a great father would be number one on my list as, as of proud accomplishments, right? Right. Well, what I realized, as, I mean, being being a nerd, I can't ever just leave a head scratcher on its own, you know, even if I'm hoovering the house and, you know, changing nappies in the meantime. So I'm, I sort of went down the rabbit hole a bit. I was trying to, answering this, trying to answer this question, does it, how did we get to this point? How did we? How, how did we get to a point where there's a mother-shaped blind spot in in the feminism which I just internalized as a, as a teenager. So magazine feminism, if you like, mainstream feminism. And I realized that, like, it's not that nobody's ever thought of it. Far from it. I mean, there have been countless feminists, you know, who've spoken up for mothers, who've made the case for motherhood, who've, who've spoken to the embodied difference between men and women and the fact that women's reproductive role and, and the, the importance of the, the, the fact that being a mum matters to the vast majority of women. There are so many feminists who've written and spoken about that, going all the way back to the beginning of the movement in the, in the late 18th century in England. But somehow, again and again, they get memory hold. Somehow, again and again, those are not the those are not the women who are who are held up. And what I realised, the, the the more I kind of went down the rabbit hole, is that actually the memory holding of maternal of of mother motherhood maternality, if you like, in feminism is actually quite recent, and it dates from the second wave, and it dates particularly to two technological transformations, which both impelled the second wave. Well, one one tech transformation, which is the arrival of reproductive like reproductive healthcare, quote unquote, which is to say birth control and abortion, which rapidly became. Um, the the central foundations of a kind of feminism committed to flattening all of the reproductive differences between men and women, um, which then became it has has since been the dominant mode of feminism. And because we have those technologies which give us the illusions that we can flatten those differences, we can we can therefore pursue this project of of total sameness between the sexes. Um, even if actually in practice it still turns out not to be true, because there are still a billion and one ways that we're different, and there are still a billion and one ways in which more often than not we want to be different. Um, yet the technologies exist seem to give us that possibility and because of that all of those because we have the tech that seems to fix the problem all those feminists who pre, who prior to birth control and abortion were saying no actually we, we have to defend women's interests as the the ones who give birth and the ones who breastfeed and the ones who the ones who are mothers um seem somehow less important because we, we we've got a tech fix for that we don't need a social fix for that anymore and so all of those all of those feminist voices have been relatively marginalized ever since and and, and the winners kind of wrote the history books so the so the feminism of care and of maternality and of embodiment has been kind of sidelined and we have this we have the kind of we have a feminism of freedom which very importantly is underwritten by biotech i mean and so and so what i what most people call the beginning of the sexual revolution, which is to say the arrival of reliable birth control and all the social transformations which have followed from that, I think we we should understand much more accurately as the beginning of the transhumanist revolution, which is the point where we started to apply technologies to ourselves in pursuit of individual freedom. So in a sense, and it began with women and it began with liberal feminism. In a sense, we industrialized ourselves in pursuit of individual freedom. And we've been we've been going further and further down that track ever since. You know, and, and I mean, there's a thousand and one different fertility technologies which have spun out of that 
all of which kind of extend the reach of technology and of commerce further and further into the human body and particularly into the female body, such that we now have commercial surrogacy in some jurisdictions. We have the whole IVF and fertility industry. We have people buying and selling gametes on the internet. Um, and we have increasingly people, the idea of cosmetic self remodeling in the, in the name of identity and freedom. And you can draw a straight line from, from, from the arrival of birth control, which is to say, you know, meddling with your endocrine system in the name of personal freedom. You can draw a straight line from that through to transgender medicine. And really, it's just a difference of degree. It's just a sort of extension of the same field. Interesting. Uh, I remember when I was in college, we would often talk about what we called hookup culture at the time. And hookup culture was just the expectation that you could have casual hookups with people and it's fun and no commitment is really expected. And I found immediately it fit quite well with the factory settings of men. We didn't, we, we needed very little convincing, but I would talk to young woman after young woman that would really be burned by Women, by women absolutely culture. hate it and women don't feel able to speak about it. I mean, my friend yeah. Louise Perry writes very persuasively right. about it. And ironically though, it wasn't the men that were publicly advocating for this way of being. Largely, it was the hardcore feminists that were pushing this as a norm. It happened to benefit men, but we weren't the ones out there saying. Because if you suggest for a moment that women's orient mate selection approach or orientation or preferences differ in any meaningful way from those of men, what you're doing is re-entrenching patriarchal stereotypes and you're you're threatening to, to, to re-inscribe the differences between the sexes, which that form of sameness feminism, freedom feminism, has worked so hard to overcome. Overcome. And, you know, given that we have the technologies which flatten the reproductive differences, or at least most of them, the moral or emotional ones should, in theory, if you're a blank slatist, just disappear. They should just come out in the wash over time. And the fact that this hasn't happened, I mean, we've got we've got 50 years of receipts now, haven't we, since the, since the sexual revolution. If the sexual double standard, quote, as so-called, if the differences in mate selection preferences between the sexes was really just a, a, a matter of socialization and a matter of stereotypes and a matter of, you know, different, different upbringings, you would have thought that with 50 years of 50 years to come out in the wash, it would have done so by now. But all that's happened actually is that, that those differences have, that those differences have persisted and they, but, but they've, they've ended up being some, somehow reordered to the market. So they've become part of this hostile, competitive transactional order where men and women weaponize the, the normative uh, mate-seeking behaviors of the opposite sex against them. So women's, women's longing, w- w- women's normatively greater longing for emotional connection gets exploited by pickup quote unquote pickup artists who neg them and make them feel insecure and then or try and overwhelm them with status displays and then use that as a way of manipulating women into granting sexual access and then discarding them or women who who will exploit men's desire to look at young pretty women to, to make a ton of money on on OnlyFans or any, any yeah pay their college tuition by going on one of those sugar daddy websites I mean there's a, a thousand and one you know squalid ways that the normative mate seeking behaviors of both both sexes continue to to exist and they continue to be there and they continue to be real. And because we have these technologies which flatten the, the brute material reproductive difference and we can just have sex in what's supposedly a consequence-free vacuum, we can pretend those differences no longer apply. And, and, and all that's done is to turn them, into, turn them into commodities and weapons. And it's created this incredibly toxic culture where, on, honestly, I speak to people in their early 20s who are, who are longing for f- companionship and solidarity and mutual affection. They say it's just, it's a wilderness out there. I mean, my heart goes out to you guys. I've noticed a lot more dissatisfaction with the pill from women I'm close enough to talk about that kind of thing with. 
This has been one of common, this is actually one of the things that really surprised me. So the last chapter in, in my book is a feminist case against the pill. And I had some pushback on it, but the pushback has all come from boomers. It's older men and women who are like, you cannot possibly be making a feminist case against the pill, is it? The, the pill was the foundation of feminism as, as I understand it, as I grew up. What? This, this isn't a thing. You know, <laughs> what are you talking about? And then I, I, I make the same argument to women who are like 21 or 22 and they're like, oh, uh-huh. like, oh yeah, of course. Oh, I, yeah, they're of course. like, I stopped yeah. taking the pill a right. year. Yeah. Yeah. And, and who just see it as completely obvious. And I was put on this thing at the age of 14 and it made me fat and crazy and depressed. And then I came off it 10 years later and I had a total personality yeah, transplant. My and the things I thought, and, yeah. um, I was happier yeah, and yeah, so yeah. forth. Yeah. And the, that thing I thought was my permanent, my, my chronic mental health issue turned out to just be this endocrine disruptor you've been giving me for 10 years. Right. Now, what did you do to me? And what was, what, what was any of it for? You know, all I had, all I had was bad sex with people who didn't love me and who wanted to choke me. Like this, this was a terrible idea. And uh, yeah, I guess it's like with, with, any of these sort of cultural interventions. I mean, the, the original advocates of the pill, the original advocates of people like Margaret Sanger, I mean, whatever else you want to say about her, she was a kind of crazy eugenicist in general, not job in... Planned thousand. Parenthood, right? Right. I mean, kind of scary person. But, but the, that generation genuinely believed that the that birth control, like the, the only effect it would have would be to reduce unwanted pregnancies. And um, what they had, they, they completely hadn't reckoned on how radically it would change sexual behavior. Nobody has, no, it never crossed anybody's mind to think that once you have quote unquote safe sex, people are going to have a lot more of it. Like nobody, everyone just assumed everything else would stay the same apart from there would just be fewer accidental pregnancies and otherwise sexual norms would stay more or less stable. And that's just really wasn't what happened. Instead, there was such an explosion in uh, casual sex, essentially, because people could, you know, the, the, what, as it turned out, what had been keeping a lid on everybody's rampant horniness was the fact that there was a real material risk of pregnancy. And, you know, yes, there were some unwanted pregnancies, but on the whole, the fact that the fact that it was a real material risk and there were really stringent social controls on it had more or less kept that kept a lid on it and, and once that risk once that seemed largely de-risked everybody was like fine let's let's go for it and you know we have 50 years worth of the consequences and I, I agree with Louise who argues very cogently on this in the case against the sexual revolution the net benefit hasn't it has not been a net benefit to women and I would argue also it's not been a net benefit to most men you know there's a small subset of highly sociosexual men who probably enjoy it but the vast majority I think of both sexes who generally in over the long term i think are, are both longing for companionship and you know long term long term relationship and most people still want families and kids and instead have found themselves in this blasted wasteland of hookup culture and increasingly unhinged sort of explicit sexual content everywhere are, are asking themselves is this really actually is was this did this benefit anybody I, i'm i'm not so sure i think the paradox of choice underlies all of this i mean i think almost anyone could think of examples from their life where just being given more and more choices doesn't necessarily make you happier, right? Just like having one great toy that you loved as a kid and then going to the toy store, maybe initially it's amazing, but at the end of the day, you can just be paralyzed by the fact that you don't actually know exactly what you want. I'm a big fan of a short menu. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, I have this experience at restaurants all the time. It's like I, now when I go to a restaurant, I don't know, do you, you don't really have diners in the UK that like we have in, in New York and New we Jersey. We have Reese's Spoons, which are kind of similar, okay. I think. Well, the, the, at a diner, an American diner, they're famous for just having everything on the menu. They just, you know, a 10 page menu with 70 things on each page. So what I've now had to do as an adult is remind myself, don't look at the menu. Because if you look at the menu, you will not only will you just spend 20 minutes trying to choose, whatever you choose will be wrong because you'll have this thought in the back of your head that maybe I didn't choose right. Just think about something that would pretty much satisfy you that's in the ballpark of what you want and just order that because they'll have it. And this is in some way a metaphor for 
certain aspects of happiness is like it, it doesn't actually behoove you if you're in a relationship, say, to constantly have the illusion that someone else around the corner might be better, which is what's given to you by dating apps and by hookup culture in general. That may not be the path to happiness, but certainly I think it is the incentive of capitalism to maximize choice, right? Where And that... And it's the, in the incentive of dating apps to, to not pay you off. Of course. I mean, There's an obvious They, obvious they lose money you, right. if you find the one, right? <laughs> so the, the point is to keep you on the app. Keep you scrolling. Yeah. Keep you swiping. That's right. I'm curious, what is your perspective on abortion? Do you consider this similar to the pill or do you have more of a reverence for the fact that that's available? This is something I've really grappled with. I mean, I came unhappily, you know, as a, I mean, I was, I, I came to this topic and I came to writing Feminism Against Progress broadly in the safe, legal and rare camp. And over the course of writing the book, I came uncomfortably to the conclusion that actually the, the, the decisive moment of victory uh, for the feminism of freedom over the feminism of care was the legalization of abortion. Because I, it's difficult to think of something which expresses more clearly and more viscerally, literally, the the primacy of freedom over the needs of a, of a vulnerable dependent than to say my bodily autonomy is so important that it's I, I can claim it even at the expense of a potential life. It's difficult to think of a, of a more direct statement of, of your, moral, your moral hierarchy than that. To say, you know, I can kill a potential baby in defense of my own freedom. So, and downstream of that, a great many, a great many things follow. Again, I mean, we could go into the whole uh, gender surgery thing and the whole, you know, proliferation of biotechnologies, which I think really come down, downstream. I mean, both like, the pill and abortion really come as a package. Like, that, that's the important thing to understand. You know, once the pill was there, um, abortion was in the mail because it changed sexual behavior so radically that it actually the, what happened was not, as Margaret Sanger expected, a reduction in the number of unwanted pregnancies, but a, but a rapid increase because sexual norms changed so, so much much and so quickly that even though the number of accidental pregnancies per hookup went down, the total number of hookups went up so much that the total number of unplanned pregnancies just went through the roof. And so that created a ratchet towards the, really, the, it, it created a, a moral case for abortion because suddenly all these women were, were having sex and then some of them were, some of them weren't using the pill, so some of them were getting pregnant and then some, and then and, women And you were, can get pregnant on the pill. You can. And so women were dying in backstreet back street abortions and there was a, and it made for a powerful and, you know, very moving feminist case for, for the legalization of a, of a technology which would save women well, so from having to die. So you actually led to the demand to legal abortion, yes. legalize abortion yes. in some way. Yes. The two come as a package. Once you have the pill, you will have legal abortion. It's pretty much impossible to have the contraceptive, to have mostly reliable contraceptives, unless you also have abortion as a backstop. Um, and the two together really represent our entry into the transhumanist era, where we accepted in principle the idea that medicine isn't just there to fix things which have gone wrong, but sometimes that's there to break things which are working as they should. In the, in the name of personal freedom. And, and it's from that sort of inversion of our medical paradigm from a restorative to a meliorist one that every other transhumanist initiative that's followed since, you know, in, in terms of, you know, upgrading ourselves or remodeling ourselves or editing ourselves, everything else follows from that moment. That was, it was the, the, the first transhumanist moment. So, I mean, this, so thus far, my, my critique of abortion, my sense of where abortion sits in our cultural history, I mean, it's, a, it's an immensely consequential moment. And I think we, we really underpriced just how powerful that was. 
Um, it's difficult to talk about, and I think particularly in America, it's very difficult to talk about because your dis- your your dialectic there about abortion is so polarized. It's become so so bitterly a partisan issue. In a way, I mean, in a sense, it's much easier for me to sit here and talk about it in London because it's not partisan in the same way. I mean, there's a I think you have a specific cultural history of how how feminism emerged and became fused with the Democrats and how the how the religious right kind of coalesced and formed oppositional camp. Yeah, the, 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 the history of abortion campaigning in America kind of is the history of the cultural, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Everything sort of emerges out of that. But I mean, as a Brit, I can sit here and there's all sort of relatively not deranged cultural consensus around it and say, and kind of, and, and reflect on these things. And where do I think we should go with that? Again, I went, I went back and forth with where I should, because in a sense, I sort of felt like I couldn't just dodge the question altogether. I can't raise it and then make it a sort of central, central conceptual moment and say, you know, we've massively underpriced the significance of this. And then say, well, oh, you know, I don't know what we should do about that. Maybe we should just all try and be nicer to one another or just have less bad sex. Or, I mean, I've where I ended up coming down has just annoyed everybody, frustrated everybody because it was, it's kind of a centrist position in the sense that if I were a rabid Catholic, which I'm not, I would, I'd be obliged to say, I think it should be illegal. Following through the logic of my own argument, I probably should make that argument. However, as a feminist um, and as a, a pragmatist, you know, up to a point, I can't in good conscience say, I think we should just bring, bring down the banhammer tomorrow. I can't say that because sexual norms and sexual practices and the culture has evolved around the availability of those technologies to such a degree that if we were to do that tomorrow, the results would be so brutalizing for women that in, I couldn't make that case. In we the wouldn't instantly the snap back to the culture. So. Of pre, yeah, and there would be, a, there would be a lot there of... Be, there would be an absolutely catastrophic in, interregnum in which a lot of women would probably die. As, as a feminist, I, I, I can't just hand I can't just say, yeah, yeah, we, we just have to, the only way out is through. And so I, I can't be gung-ho about that. But but what I what I have like the question I find myself asking and whether the question I think we should all be asking ourselves is you know if abortion is a bad metaphor it's a bad foundation for thinking about what women are and for think for thinking and for pursuing women's interests and I do really think that I mean I think a, a technology which which grants us personhood to the extent that we can reduce our we can escape the thing which makes us constitutively women is that that's a, a, such a form of personhood you know sets us fundamentally at odds with our own biology now to me that you know I, I don't think it could be anything could be more clearly anti-women than to say you, you can be free to the extent that you can evade being a mother. Like being a mother is part of who and what I am. Right. And you know, sure that yes, right. Okay, there are some women who don't want that at some points, but to like the capacity to be a mother is so in, inextricable from from being female, from being a woman. I don't see how that how how that should re- diminish me or diminish my personhood or, or diminish my dignity or you know my potential to con- to contribute to the flourishing of mankind. So you know, I, I want. What I would love to see is a world where women, where all, the, all babies are welcome without, without that coming at the expense of their mother's personhood. And, I, and the question I want to ask, and really the question where I think ambivalently pro and ambivalently anti feminists could possibly come together or at least brainstorm creatively, even just for a start, might be saying, you know, what would it take to create that world? You know, surely there's some stuff that we could do to make it better, which would be welcome on both sides, even whether you're pro-choice or whether you're pro-life. To make it, to, to make life easier for the born, you know, we could do, there's so much more we could do for crisis pregnancy centres, there's so much more we could do to support new mothers, there's so much more we could do to thicken the social ties, there's so much more we could do to make children welcome in the fabric of society. We need to start there. And, and can we can we start there rather than starting with making life difficult for women who find themselves in a in a pregnancy emergency? Yeah, I've uh, w- one thing many people have said I, th- I think is true. Somewhere like Italy has a culture that's far more friendly to to having and raising a child. Like if you just take your child to to a dinner 
outing with your adult friends, your adult friends are not going to think it's weird that you brought your seven-year-old, right? They're, they're going to help you and it's going to be a congenial environment. Whereas in America, you're, you're like supposed to get a babysitter so that you don't bring your freaking kid, right? And there's just like a much less of a culture of communal, um, communal parenting, in America, almost no one, very few people live with their grandparents compared to somewhere, say, like Israel, where everyone lives with with, with their parents, which gives you a natural babysitter. And so, it, and I guess this ties into one of the biggest problems I think facing almost every secular society, uh, which is the declining birth rate. Um, we're not at replacement rate in almost any country. And uh, I'm curious how you think of this this birth rate issue because it seems to me to tie into everything we've been talking about. Um, everything gov- states have done to try to increase the birth rate pretty much hasn't worked, and I think that is because it's such a fundamental. The, the root cause is so fundamental, which is that you know economic growth and perhaps progress theology has made being a single person you know, more and more attractive. But the experience of having a a child and having a family hasn't necessarily become much more attractive. It's sort of not so different than it was 40 years ago. And so in relative terms, people want to prolong their adolescence as long as possible, or or they think they do. And, And so what you get is a declining birth rate. How do you roll that back I don't know. Is short. I mean, a lot of people are trying a lot of different things. I hope someone figures it out. I mean, my, it's clear to a lot of people at this point that the culture and the economy and the politics that we have is structurally antinatalist. Um, and what, what and what's so striking to me, um, and probably bears repeating, is that this this is not just a Western phenomenon. This is that this it, it's it's present in China. It's present in Japan. It's present pretty much everywhere in the world where we have where, where techno capital. I mean the. A highly technological, you know, atomizing, knowledge-based, um, urbanizing, technology-heavy economy, where wherever that exists, the, the the same problems, the same problems become apparent. Well, actually, this as a slight slight detour. One of the things, a, a, a fact that that I stumbled on, which I find interesting and provocative. I mean, it, it's common to hear conservatives, particularly in America, blame feminism for the breakdown of the family. But what, what's very, what, what, what's, what I, I discovered a little while ago when I was looking into it, there, there's a link between feminism and the, and the atomization of the family. But it's not, it's, it's not at all clear which way the causality runs. Because if you look at the story of China, um, it was the breakdown in the family which caused feminism in the sense, in the sense that um, there was a very, there was a deliberate push by the Chinese government over some decades of, of the last century to get to urbanize the Chinese population, um, to, to break down these traditional extended large um, productive households type families, which was typical of Chinese agrarian life, and to have to move people into smaller households within the cities and doing doing more kind of developed world industrial type jobs, um, which which fragmented the size of families, and it and, and with that came the one child policy, which which reduced obviously the size of families, um, and and the this deliberate um, dis- atomization of the family in turn produced feminism because a whole a lot of the women who would previously have accepted their their gendered role within a more traditional family setup found themselves obliged, for example, to take on filial piety, which would previously have been their brother's obligation, which meant a, a duty to look after their to their parents in old age, which in turn meant that they would have to p- pursue ambitious careers, which in turn meant that if they got married, they they, they couldn't just go home, go and be a stay-at-home mum, which their husbands then expected them to do. So so these Chinese men were coming into marriages with very traditional expectations, and you, you're going to do all the housework, 
And these women are like, no, I can't do that because I'm the only child in the family and I'm, I have to go and earn a ton of money because I have to support our parents in old age. Um, and, and, and of course, that, that then gives rise to a particular, a particular a distinctive brand of Chinese feminism, which is saying, no, actually, the, these patriarchal these patriarchal expectations can't stand. They, 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 these, we, this won't hold. This doesn't work. So <laughs> whereas in the West, it looks as though feminism caused the breakdown of the family. In China, it was actually the other way around. The breakdown of the family caused feminism. And so there's obviously a relationship between women pushing back against gender's expectations and asking questions about women's caring role within the family and the pressures imposed by this atomizing, shrinking families, which is typical of developed world, modern, post-industrial capitalism. There's a relationship, but it's it's not at all clear which which way the causal relationship goes. I mean, all I can, like the only inference I can make from looking at that bigger picture is to say, I'm clearly... Clearly, that social and economic order imposes brutal and asymmetrical expectations and obligations on women who are mothers. Clearly, some women are responding to that by just having fewer children because the burden is intolerable. And we should probably think about the wider social and economic order, which is imposing those pressures if we want if we want mothers to be willing to have kids again. So you, you tie in the pill and the abortion and the technologies of the sexual revolution, or as you call it, the transhumanist re- revolution, with this wider story about how we're told we can transcend the body, transcend nature. You tie this in with the trend towards cross-sex hormones and cross-sex surgeries that has exploded in the past seven years, especially if you look at data, at least I've looked at data from America. This is an interesting area where the UK and and America are in different places in the conversation. I've heard people from Great Britain complain that whatever happens in America, they experience it a couple years later. I think there's something of the reverse in this case where when I talk to people from the UK, people will say the pushback against trans ideology has sort of won in the UK. I don't know if you agree with that. I'm not willing to be triumphalist, to be honest. I mean, I think the gender critical feminists have been more successful in the UK than they have in America. And I think that, again, that, that's actually connected to the, the specific contours of the culture war and how that, how that emerged around especially the issue of birth control and abortion in America and the way that became so sharply politically polarised in America. And one of the downstream consequences of that has been that any, any feminist and any objections to that kind of biopolitics um, is immediately right coded. Like you're immediately, immediately, instantly coded as being as coming from the religious right, which makes it very difficult as a otherwise broadly left leaning feminist to, to to mount any kind of critique of gender ideology. They just you know because the Schmittian logic of it is just so so brutal and so all encompassing, and that's just not the case in Britain for because our our cultural context is a little bit different. We also, I mean, there are there are some other quirks of the British context which have made it easier for gender critical feminists to mobilise. I mean, there's a there was an, an on a mum's messaging board, funnily enough, which has been a major vector for for political organisation, particularly of mothers. And, I, and I mean, in that sense, you could probably argue that the internet itself has been has been a, 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 an enabling factor in giving mothers a voice in feminism in a way which just wasn't really the case prior to the internet. I mean, there's a there's a funny story I read in a in an, an anthology of feminist writings from the 1990s about a women's centre where they took a vote on whether or not they should have a crash, and they voted a crash at this women a, like a, a, a daycare. Um, at the at this women's centre, and and it was voted down because none of the mothers who would have voted for it were there because they were looking after their kids. And so so there's a structural problem. Like if you can only if you can only participate by showing up physically, like as a mother of young children, like you have a you have a problem. Like you you have a you, your your voice is dis, your voice dis- 
disappears. But now that now that so much political activism takes place on the internet, like mums all have smartphones. You know, we can do a lot of scrolling and a lot of we can do a lot of activism, you know, <laughs> while simultaneously pushing a buggy. And I think that's that's been a major driver actually in in helping to helping to bring back in the voices of women who just know because they've grown humans in their literal entra- entrails that men can't be women. They're like, no, obviously this is bollocks because <laughs> you know clear, clearly men can't be women um, because just duh. And that's that's brought some it's, it's brought a whole a whole previously very mod, like structurally marginalised perspective back into it. And Mumsnet was a major. Driver of that in the UK, and just because it was mostly UK focused, um, that's that's helped to impel it. And there's also, I mean, the the the, the contours of political organising are just different in the UK. So all of all of those factors, plus the we don't have quite the same culture war um, terrain as you as you do in America. That's all that's all contributed to the to Turf Island being what it is. Did you see the Barbie movie? I did. They ex- pregnant Barbie was expelled from the Barbie verse. I thought that was that, that, that was a, a fascinating way that it's you know if even if it was meant intentionally as a liberal feminist screed, it told on itself in some very eloquent ways. Yeah, I'm cu- I'm curious what you thought of that movie. I thought it, to me it missed the mark in in several ways. Besides being too lecture heavy as a film, I think that's a separate critique. It was interesting to me that you know, equality was not really the point of the film. I thought what it was going to say at the end was that, okay, let's give the Kens half of the seats on the Supreme Court and make, turn them from an oppressed class into an actual equal class akin to this, what the civil rights movement did with blacks and whites in America. But that actually isn't where the movie went. They gave them like a symbolic amount of power, but still kind of kept the Kens, Kens as second class citizens. And I thought that was an unexpected way from to end the movie. I sort of feel like maybe, I'm talking talking metaphorically here, but it kind of applies in real life as well. Until until there's actual generativity in the Barbie and Ken universe, we're all it, we're all just going round and round in circles, you know. Because like, fundamentally, like all the the contests between like the the struggles between men and women, the negotiation between men and women about how we live together, all really boils down to how we make the next generation. Like that's that's what it's all fundamentally about, you know. How do we re- reproduce ourselves as a species? You know, that's that that's what's at stake when when we when we argue about when how men and women can or should or shouldn't live together. And and for as long as that's excluded from from the Barbie and Ken universe, all we're really arguing about is is roles and stereotypes, and all all, it, the, all of it is a LARP. You know, for as long as pregnant Barbie is expelled from the Barbie verse, um, it's all it's all just it's all just academic. It's all empty empty theorizing. Yeah, that's a very good point. I mean, at, at some level, r- reproduction is the the root cause of all the trade offs and interesting. Uh, and this is obviously yeah. not to say that people who don't have kids have make no meaningful contribution. Of course, that's not true. You know, there have always been there have always been people who don't who don't want children or who can't have children, and you know, there's and any number of whom make you know fine, honourable contributions to human civilization. You know, it's not as though our, our the meaning of life can be reduced to having kids. But you know, <laughs> but but life life won't go on unless we do have kids. So you know, it's it, it may not be sufficient, but it's it's indisputably necessary. Before I let you go, I want to ask. Um, you know, obviously most of the conversation has been, uh, uh, and most of your writing is about women broadly, but I'm curious, do you have, do you have any thoughts about the status of men and masculinity right now in the culture and what your perspective on that is? Absolutely. I mean, I, I could go on about this for a whole, a whole nother hour, which unfortunately we don't have. I mean, one of the, I, I, I think one of the under, another of the undercounted costs of flattening the differences between the sexes and in the process, um, imagining that we could make all social spaces co-ed um, has been the loss of male single sex sociality. 
and I think people what people wildly underestimate how how great a loss that has been for how, for how many men. Um, and I, it's perhaps less palpable, like at the top of the socioeconomic socioeconomic chain, because you know, men men with more social capital will be more resourceful and more able to find one another and socialise and do do whatever men do when when I'm not around. But 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 I think it's been particularly sharply felt further down. Like the the, the war on men's single sex space was really pursued by high. Cl- uh, by high status women in the name of smashing the glass ceiling, right? You know, it was all about breaking down the boys' clubs and, you know, ac- allowing women access to equal professional opportunities, you know, in, in you know, high achieving careers such as the law. But one of the unintended consequences of claiming that, in fact, all social spaces ought to become unisex has been to, has been to, the, to whittle away at, um, at social spaces for men who were, for, for, the, for the classes of men who were never gatekeeping power and they were never gatekeeping, you know, social goods particularly. They were just, I, I don't know, shooting pool, whatever it was. That, I have no idea what men do when I'm not like, it's, it's, I, I don't really have a stake in it. Play you know. Call of Duty. Well, whatever. Um, but a lot of those spaces, like the, the, the more structured ones, you know, the, the hobby groups and the pubs and the clubs and, and all of the, those kinds of social spaces where men might once have gathered to do whatever it is that men do and to form one another to an extent. And those, those networks of formation where younger men would learn how to, how to man from older men um, have have withered away in the process. And I don't think it's, I don't think that's just downstream of, of the great feminist leveling, but I think, I think feminism has made a contribution to that. Um, and if, if we're ever going to ask for men's support in pushing back, for example, against the incursion of trans, trans identified males in women's sports or women's prisons, we should also be willing to, to turn the heat down a little bit on making all, all social spaces unisex. And I think, you know, just be maybe a little bit more chill when, when the guys want to get together without us. Okay, I could talk to you for another two hours, but I got to let you go. Uh, your book is Feminism Against Progress. There's a lot in there we didn't get to. I really recommend people get it. Aside from that, is there anything my audience should go towards on the internet to find you? Your I write regularly at Unheard, UK online publication. My Substacks Reactionary Feminist. You can find me on Twitter at Moving Circles. Beautiful. Thank you, Mary. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you enjoyed it, be sure to follow me on social media and subscribe to my podcast to stay up to date on all my latest content. If you really want to support me, consider becoming a member of Coleman Unfiltered for exclusive access to subscriber-only content. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.